Well, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Robert Kelly. For those uh, who haven't yet met, so glad that you are here. If you're a guest with us, we always love uh, to uh, meet uh, new folks, and uh, we hope that uh, you have a really great afternoon. Uh, and for everyone else, welcome to the kickoff of our new series. It's going to last for the month of November called Be Rich. And uh, this is a campaign that dozens of churches around uh, the country and even the world are participating in at this same time of the year. We were introduced to it uh, some years, uh, a little while back, I guess, a year or two ago. And uh, we got so excited about this campaign that we knew uh, that we were going to bring it here to you guys at Beacon because we just loved everything about it, super excited about it. The main ideas and the outlines actually come from Andy Stanley. Some of you know Andy Stanley. He's a pastor down in uh, Georgia. He's also one of my pastoral crushes. And so, you know, if, uh, uh, if you get anything uh, helpful out of this series, it's because of Andy. If there's anything in the series that's kind of convoluted in translation, that's what the stuff I added. So we'll just, go, we'll just go with that for now because this is some great stuff that Andy has developed. And uh, we're going to be talking about money and generosity and things like that over the next uh, four weeks. But I want to give just... You know, a little bit of a disclaimer, especially if you're newer here, uh, you don't really know what our attitude is. You know, we, we don't have the relationship for you to know what, what we're really like and how we really do view money. Uh, but we're not, uh, we're not uh, one of those churches that is always looking for money and kind of beating people up and talking about it like that. So I'm asking that you just, you know, don't zone me out quite yet, all right? Just give me just a little bit of time here. You can zone me out later if you don't like anything that you're hearing. But just give me a chance to shift your thinking just a little bit. Because I think it would be naive for us to believe that we've actually got it all figured out when it comes to money or our possessions or generosity. I think we have lots that we can learn. And I'm convinced that the Bible has unbelievably powerful and really practical things to say about those of us who are rich. Now, this series got its beginning in a Bible text in 1 Timothy 6. He said, command those who are rich in this present world. Now, he goes on to explain what he's commanding them to do. And he talks, you know, he's going to talk about not being arrogant and stuff like that, about your wealth and, and being uncertain. But he's saying, command those who are rich in this present world. It's as if the Apostle Paul is saying, I've got a special message that rich people need to hear. They have to hear it because it's, it's different being rich. It comes with greater responsibilities than if you were poor. So being rich, it, it matters. And for those who are rich in this present world, I have a special message that you need to give to them. Command those who are rich in the present world. So we ask, of course, well, I mean, that's a good thing to tell all those rich people, right? Those other people, because they're the rich ones, because there's not a person, rarely, rarely is there a person that will say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm actually one of the rich people, because we always do the comparison thing, so we always know there are richer people, and so we go, oh, that's a message that I think all rich people should hear, but we don't view ourselves in the rich category, most of us don't, yet the statistics tell us that if you make $48,000 a year or more, you are in the top 1% of rich people in the world. 
So you remember all those conversations, the 1% and the 99%? We were like, yeah, those one percenters, they should give more of their money away, right? And we had this whole attitude about the one percenters. Yeah, we're the one percenters globally. If you take all of the people who are here on the planet in this present world, we are in fact in the 1%. If you take all of the people who have ever lived on the planet, you will find that we are unbelievably wealthy. The access we have to stuff, to food, to entertainment, all of this is incredible by world standards. We are, in fact, rich. Paul goes on to say in verse 18, he says, command them to do good, to be rich. That's where the whole name of the series comes from. Be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. And I think it's possible that we are, in fact, most of us are, in fact, rich. And I think it is likely that we don't know how to be rich good. I think we are, I think we can be pretty lousy at it, actually. I think most Americans are bad at being rich. So, for instance, Northeast people, us, we're up here in the Northeast, with all of our wealth and all of our education, do you know that we give less than other parts of the country do? We are the least generous section of the country. We give a paltry 4% on average of our income. The rest of the country does more. If you think about it from a political standpoint, we don't fare well there. Blue state, red states outgive blue states. Now some of you are thinking, that's impossible. How could the red states outgive the blue states? They're the ones that actually care about people. And people from another political persuasion will say, well, that's exactly what I would have expected the red states to outgive the blue states, because it's all just talk. You know, this is, but we're here in the Northeast in a blue state. We give less than people in other parts of the country. Here's a great little chart that I came across. I found it uh, pretty compelling, personally. If you make less than $25,000 a year, you give away 12.3% of your income, which is pretty neat because the Bible speaks in terms of percentages and it talks about the tithe, which is 10%. And so the people who are making less than $25,000 are able to give away 10% and then some. And that sounds pretty biblical. You give away what you're expected to give away, the tithe, and then you do whatever you can on top of that. And they, these people are doing that. Which means, of course, when you make, say, 25000 to 50000 it should all get better. But, of course, it doesn't. They give away 6.8%. You're like, wow, that's a, that's a significant drop. As soon as you get into those kind of numbers, wow, that's serious. But, you know, we can understand it. Living here in Nassau County, especially, you know, 50000 it's it's hard to live on anything like that in a county like ours. But when you start making a little bit more, say fifty to seventy-five, how will you fare? Well, you give even less at four point eight percent. Yeah, but but that's because we haven't gotten near those more magical numbers, right? Seventy-five to hundred is starting to get to the place where you could really make a decent living. So you give between you know seventy-five and hundred, surely you'll start to turn this around. At three point eight, no, it gets worse. But fortunately, the average household in Nassau County makes about $120,000, uh, I think, is the average uh, income for Nassau County. 
And it's the magical number, right? You made 100,000, that's a good thing. Like you, make, you break that and that's kind of like a, that's a new threshold. So clearly generosity will kick in at that point between 100 and 200. No, they drop to 3%. And down it goes because if you go from 200 to 500,000, you make all between, let me think about that, quarter of a million, you make, you give away 2.6%. This just drops and drops and drops and drops. Now, fortunately, I have some really, really good news for you. If you make half a million dollars or more, you've suddenly turned the tide and you give away a whopping 2.8%. And like, it takes you to get to a half million before you even start to see these things turn around. And all of these are paltry except for the under 25. The rule, you know, obviously the moral here, is if you want to be generous, you have to cut your salary down below $25,000. <laughs> I guess that's the way we need to do it. I think it's clear that we don't know how to be rich. That's why he tells us, command, because God isn't, he's not interested simply in how much you give. He's interested in the percent, because he's interested in how it impacts you. Even beyond the percent, he wants us to give sacrificially. That's the message throughout the whole of the scriptures. Do you feel it? Does it hurt to be generous? Because if it doesn't, we haven't yet begun to understand genuine generosity. That's what this series is designed to do, to help each and every one of us be rich in an incredibly great way. And according to this text... Being rich means being generous, being generous. So are Christians good at it? Are we good at generosity? You know, is there this thing called Christian generosity? And you might, you know, think of it like this. So you've, we've all got friends, many who are uh, Christians and many who are non-Christians, right? And so think about uh, all the different categories of people. Even if you have Christian friends, but they're not really kind of committed to their faith right now, you can kind of put them in that other category. How many of them, when you're talking about Christianity, the first thing they think about is just how incredibly generous Christians are? You know, you're, you're in a conversation, you're hanging out with a bunch of people, the idea of Christianity comes up, and the first thing they say is, oh man, Christians, they're the best. They're so unbelievably generous. They're so unbelievable. They're just so sacrificial. You should have heard what these Christians did. They helped this person. They did this thing. Is that what, they're, is that what you're hearing? That's the first thing that people say when they think about Christians? Or do they think about, you know, how judgmental and harsh and critical and bigoted and all of these things? So imagine what it would be like if, in fact, that wasn't the way we were viewed. You know, we think that, what, people are going to be attracted to Christianity because of what we believe? Like one day they'll learn our theology and all of a sudden the churches won't be able to hold all of the people coming, busting in the doors to come to Christ because now they know the things that we believe. They know our theology. I mean, that's certainly how I hoped it was going to be. I went, I went to uh, school. I went to seminary uh, before I uh, came into full-time uh, Christian ministry. And, uh, you know, we're learning all this stuff, right? We're studying hard and learning history and learning the languages and trying to, like, do apologetics, you know, defending the faith and getting all of this cognitive stuff going on. And I was pretty excited because I was pretty well equipped to, like, get out there and start convincing people to, uh, you know, trust in Christ and to, you know, be a part of this Christian movement. And then one of my professors, he said to me, you know, Robert, people don't, they don't care what you know. 
until they know you care. We've all heard this saying before, right? People don't, they don't care what you know. And I'm like, really? But I know so much killer stuff right now. This would be so good. He's like, yeah, but people don't really care what you know until they know that you care. I was so bummed out. I'm like, oh, man, now I actually got to care. <laughs> like, that leads like heart change and all that. Like, can you imagine what it would be like if the first thing that people thought about Christians is how great they are for society. How awesomely generous and sacrificial they are. In order for that to happen, Christians need to reclaim their heritage as a no-strings-attached, recklessly generous, kind-hearted people. And I say reclaim that heritage because that's what the early church did. You know, the early Christians, they were, they, they were largely marginalized on the, side, on, on the fringes of society. Many of them were poor. They didn't have assets. They didn't have church buildings. They had nothing to leverage the new message of Christianity to become anything other than just a, a footnote in history. And yet that's not what happened. Within 300 years, they were the dominant transformative force in the Roman Empire, within 300 years, how did they do it? What leverage did they apply? Well, they only had one thing they could leverage. It wasn't their beliefs, because people aren't going to listen to that yet. They had compassion. That's what they leveraged. That's who they were. And if you want to know why, we can turn to Luke chapter 6, verse 32. Luke 6, 32 to get an insight into the teaching of Jesus on this topic. It's so easy for us when, you know, we think about these grand epic stories of sacrifice, right? We think about the great movies that we go and see and we love them and the stories that are being written about sacrifice and generosity. And we love these stories and we think that that means that because we love them, it's, it's human nature. But it is not human nature. This, the, the, actually, the reason we even value these things, the reason we even value these kinds of stories today is because of Jesus. Because the Christian ethic has actually changed the way we think about generosity. Because Jesus went about trying to transform the generosity paradigm. So, all right, so little background in history. So in the ancient Greco-Roman world, there was an idea called liberalitas, liberalitas. And so you could think of it as like liberalitis, but it's, it's this idea of Roman Greek generosity. And you would see this show up in a whole lot of ways. Like on their coins, they would mint their coins with a picture of, uh, this is the personification on the left of liberalitas. And it was, she was shown as a woman carrying the horn of plenty, the cornucopia. And she would distribute her bounty to all in need. And the Roman emperors, they loved to stamp their faces on coins because it was, I guess, their money. They're like, my money, all my picture, give it all to me. Uh, and so the, the Roman emperors would stamp it. On the back of this coin, you can see it says liberalitas across the top. And that's, a, a car, that's an engraving, a, a pressing of the, the Roman emperors distributing these coins. See little coins are kind of in the bottom there. They're distributing these coins to the people. Liberalitas. That's who we are. We're all generous in this way. The thing is, when we start to learn about that type, the type of generosity that they were talking about in liberalitas, we can turn to Cicero, who in a work called On Duties, 
in uh, 44 BC, he said, human beings are born for the sake of other human beings so that they may mutually benefit one another. We should then follow nature, contributing to the general good by the exchange of favors through giving and receiving, and so by our skill, industry, and talents, cement human society more closely together, person to person. I think most of us reading this would say, that's a beautiful sentiment. That is actually how the world ought to work. There is some real elegance in this idea, this reciprocity idea. In fact, this is how we really do hope and expect the world to work. You could rephrase it like this. We give to please the recipient with the hopes that they will return the favor. And here is where things start to go a little bit, get it shaded just a few shades darker for us. When you phrase it like this, you start to see its underbelly a little bit more. And you realize that the reciprocity comes with a whole lot of strings attached. We actually have a way of talking about it in our culture. I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. Because <laughs> that's the way it ought to be, right? I mean, Italians, they've got this thing locked down solid. Take a look at Sebastian. <laughs> now you gotta plan the wedding. Now I come from an Italian family. Italians do it a lot different than most people when it comes to weddings, okay? Italians don't register at Bed Bath and Beyond. We don't bring a toaster to a wedding. Italians bring cash, okay? We, yeah, we put it in an envelope. Sometimes there's not even a card. There's just cash with a post-it note. Congrats. Now, the bride and groom know they're getting cash. They're sitting there with a satin bag that says cash in diamonds. And people walk in and, you know, they start making a deposit. Now, some people don't give the cash right away. They hold on to it. They wait till dinner's served. Right, they go to dinner, they'll have the dinner, they're eating the chicken. Right, and they go, the chicken's kind of dry, take a hundred out of the envelope. <laughs> the food stinks, take a hundred out. <laughs> then at the end of the wedding, the bride and groom, they go up to the room, and before they do anything, they start opening up these envelopes. <laughs> now, the groom takes out a black logbook. And what they're going to do, they're going to log the amount and the naming of everybody that came to the wedding, right? So the guy will be, what the Pantangeles leave? She's like, $10, like cheap $10. The reason for this book is when the Pantangeles get married, you go back to the book and you look Pantangeles. Put 10 singles in that envelope. I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. Many cultures are marked with a, this sort of ethic of reciprocity. In Chinese, there's actually a phrase. It says, courtesy demands reciprocity. A friend of mine uh, is married into a Chinese family, and I was told a story that one time the mother-in-law, uh, a, uh, a Chinese woman, had uh, brought a gift from one of her friends. So a couple of people removed from uh, her, and so uh, the way it went down is they gave her the they gave the gift, and of course she's thinking, oh, I'll open it later. But no, you you can't. You have to actually open it, 
and the mother needs to see what it is because the mother has to make certain that to be not so that she's not dishonored in the future that she can give in kind when the roles are reversed. The Japanese have a similar gift-giving attitude. One writer put it like this, by giving a gift to you, I am binding you to me in a web of social reciprocity. This is how we so often work, which is why if we go out to lunch and I treat, next time you treat, just in case there was anything unclear about this. I want to make sure we all understand this is a reciprocity kind of thing. Jesus also recognized this pattern of human generosity. Luke chapter 6, verse 32. Back in your Bibles, it says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. You catch the summary he gives, right? Even sinners do that, expecting to be repaid in full. That's the way the world works. He recognizes it. He knows it. He says, that's the basic kind of way people ought to re relate. That's sort of the minimum expectation. But it's not the Christ way. He turns this whole thing upside down and he starts talking about giving with no strings attached. Look at verse 35. He says, love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. He says, give with no strings attached. Do good to those who cannot return the favor. He is replacing liberalitas with charitas. That's a whole other concept. It's the word where we get our word charity, but it's the word charis. It's the word that's used to describe God's mercy to us. Our undeserved mercy. We're sinners. We're in rebellion against God. God comes on the scene. He gives us forgiveness in Christ by offering up Jesus on the cross while we are shaking our fists at him in rebellion. And he says, I'm going to give you charis. Grace, mercy, forgiveness. That's the Jesus way. He phrases it like this. He says, do good for those who can't or won't do anything good for you. This was the Christian ethic. A whole lot of... Uh, Scholars will point out that in the early centuries, if you want to understand the rapid growth of Christianity, this is the key idea. So the plagues would hit the ancient Roman Empire, and everyone would flee the cities. All the rich would take their money and go to their summer houses. All the powerful people would escape the plague, because they knew if they stayed in the city, they were likely to get the plague and quite possibly die. So everybody flees, except the Christians. The Christians stay and they take care of their sick. And the Christians stay and they take care of your sick. They stay and they take care of anyone 
who is in need. And when some of those people survive the plague, the only genuine family they have left are the Christians who understood what it was like to love without strings attached. Christian and non-Christian scholars point this out as one of the main reasons that Christianity became the dominant influence in Europe within 300 years of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They actually will go on to say, so in around 314 or so AD, or I forget exactly, but Constantine signs the Edict of Milan, and all of a sudden religions are now legal, including Christianity, and so we're no longer sort of a persecuted minority. We had already so heavily influenced the Roman Empire that we were now becoming a dominant force in its culture. Well, a, a while later, there was a, one particular uh, emperor who they call the apostate, and uh, he was trying to bring back the religion of the ancient Greeks and Romans, the paganism uh, that was kind of a mark of the older days. He was trying to bring it back, but he couldn't because Christianity had already so thoroughly grabbed the hearts and the minds of the people. And in a letter, Emperor Julian, he said, the, the impious, or the impious if you're me, Trevor tells me it's impious, uh, but I was educated in Jersey, so who knows. But the impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. The Galileans is another way of referring to the Christians. They support not only their poor, but ours as well. This is from in the context of a letter that he wrote to people that he was trying to, governors and others who were trying to restore the old pagan ways. And he goes, listen, here's the problem. The problem, the reason we're not winning against Christianity is because they don't care just for their poor. They care for our poor as well. The reason that we can't beat the Christians, why we can't overcome them, is because they're actually doing all of these amazing things and the people love them for it. You know what his advice was? They have to start being like the Christians. They need to start caring for the people the Christians care for. They can't ostracize, they can't isolate, they can't persecute anymore. They even told them that their priests have to stop being so pagan, that they have to actually start being righteous like the Christian priests and pastors were being. So this is, this is his whole story, saying be more like the Christians. Even the critics of Christianity recognized how powerful the compassion of the Christ followers really was. When I talk about reclaiming our generosity ethic, this is what I am talking about. This generosity is one of the most powerful gifts and it give, that God has ever given to the world. And he gives it through Christians. Christians have been on the forefront of most social justice issues for 2,000 years. Because generosity is our theology in the flesh. What we believe about God and what we believe about ourselves and what we believe about our stuff, our theology about people who are not us, from other, about others, our theology about Jesus and his gift of charis, all of that theology, all of that stuff we believe is seen in generosity. It's given flesh in generosity. It is our theology, but it's lived out in such a way that people can see it. And when they see it, they see God. 
So how do we want to practice generosity? Well, we want to partner with organizations that are already generous. We don't want to create our own whole network of social services or anything like that. So over the years, we have cultivated a series of relationships with organizations that are already doing amazingly generous work. And we as a church, every single month, we figure out ways of giving money, people, and time, and stuff to these organizations that are already doing great acts of generosity in the culture. We want to partner with them. We do not want to be competitors. And we've partnered with organizations that do things such as foster care, poverty, fighting hunger, working in the hospitals with sick children. We've worked with uh, crisis pregnancy. All of these and other categories are ki the kinds of strategic alliances that we have formed over the years. We have also spearheaded some strategic alliances with other churches. We're trying to use our influence with other churches to mobilize even more Christians to do these great acts of compassion. Now, if we want to be good at being rich, then we need practice. And so in addition to the messages that are going to make up the Be Rich series, we are going to have four challenges that we are going to give to each and every one of you. And I really do mean every one of you. So the four challenges over the next four weeks, I'll give you a summary of them, but we'll hit each one specifically each week. The first challenge is going to be to give more money. That's the easiest of all of these. Then give more time. That might be the hardest. Then give more food, and then give more gifts. These are the four challenges that we are going to try to accomplish as a congregation during the Be Rich campaign through the month of November, because we need practice in being generous, and this is how we're, we're suggesting we do it. So let me explain this week's challenge. This week's challenge is to raise money for the foster children of Nassau County. We have a fantastic relationship forming with Nassau County Social Services and their foster care divisions. There's a whole bunch of different organizations or offices within it. And they have been asking us to help in very concrete ways. There's a, a whole lot of different categories. I'll give you a sampling of them. Every year, some of the foster care parents become adoptive parents. They take the kids right out of the foster care system and they give them a permanent family. The office doesn't have the resources to throw a party for those adoptive parents. They've asked us to come alongside and help them throw that party for the adoptive parents. Some kind of a, like a little uh, you know, coming home party. Uh, that sort of a thing for these families that, have, that are actually now officially getting their own kids coming right out of the foster care system. We also have been given the opportunity to help celebrate the foster care families. So there are a couple hundred families throughout Nassau County that collectively care for a couple of hundred kids in the foster care system. But the office doesn't have a way to say, thank you for doing that to bring them all together, to celebrate them, to give them a great event, and to just say, we love you guys, you're doing an amazing work for these kids, and we want to help you support these kids. So we're going to help them do that as well. We're going to give them the money, and we're going to help them throw a party that uh, will be a part of their thank you to the foster care families. 
We're also going to support the foster care workers to find ways to come alongside them and say, you're doing awesome work here and you're not alone. You're not forgotten. We love you guys and we want to help you in whatever way we can. These are some of the most kind-hearted people. We've been meeting with them now for a few months and they're awesome. They're some of the absolute best of government workers. Their hearts are big and they get tears in their eyes when they're talking about helping these kids. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing to be a part of. There are also, there's also a great need to help when kids age out of the system. So once they age out, many of these kids don't have any social network and the foster care families are already often pressed to their capacity to help. Now what do they do? They might not even have the basic life skills necessary to know how to write a resume or they don't, might not have the clothes that they need to go on an interview. They might not even understand the whole interview process. They haven't had the basic life skills that many of us just get acclimated to because of the families that we were raised in. We're going to be able to help these families, these individuals, get on their feet when they leave the foster care system. It could be as simple as, as helping them get set up in their first apartment, getting them the furniture that they need, and, and giving them any housewarming kinds of, uh, of, of items that they might need. Coming alongside and making sure that these kids that are aging out of the foster care system get started with both a network of people and the, and the financial resources that they need to survive. So they do not need to revert to who knows what to try to make ends meet. There's also a whole other department called preventative foster care. Not every kid that is taken out of a home is taken out because of abuse. Any of those kids are immediately taken out and they're protected and put into child protective services and put in with good families who have been well vetted. But there are other things that you could cause you to lose your kids that if they were corrected, you wouldn't lose your kids. And so it could be that your house has an infestation and it needs to be completely ripped out, gutted and, and exterminated or it could be that you're not able to pay your heat bills. And so you're risking losing your kids because you can't actually afford to keep them warm in the winter. There's all sorts of different reasons. And this whole department called preventative foster care is poorly resourced financially through the, the county services. Most of the money goes to the actual foster care. But preventative is the way to keep kids with their families. And they've asked us to come alongside and help them with that as well. To, to help rectify the situations, bring some remediation to the situations that will allow kids to stay either with their immediate family or even with their extended family for a time if that is what's, what's deemed best by their social work. I'm telling you, these are some really great people doing some really great things and we have an opportunity to come alongside them and help. The goal is to raise $8,700 so that we can create a, uh, to help provide for all of the different things that they've asked us to and create the resources to help with some of these needs that come up in an emergency fashion. So how are we gonna raise $8,700. Well, to do this, and so that all of us can participate and practice toward this end, we would need 300 people, which is pretty much every single person who calls Beacon Church home, every single adult that is here at worship, at all of our services. Uh, so this is not like, you know, kind of like the low reach. This is like everyone on board or we won't make it. 300 people 
to give a one-time gift of $29. This is not a three. This is not the first of three payments. Um, this is one easy payment of $29. And if we were not $29.99 or anything like that, but if we were each to give $29, we would raise the money that we're looking to raise. We'd hit our goal and be able to help um, these kids throughout Nassau County. And we do need everyone to participate if we are going to make this goal. Now, I know that some people can't do this, and this isn't about guilt. I'm not trying to. If you're in a position where $29 doesn't work for you, then you need help. We do things like this for you. Ask us, and we will help you. Uh, and so it's not, you know, we're not trying to put anyone in a, in a pressure cooker kind of a situation. We just realize that most every one of us can do $29 to help kids who are in need. But if you can't, please don't feel any pressure. The good news is, if you can't, you can look to your left or to your right, and I am sure there is someone here who can cover your 29. And so that's the really good news, because there's going to be plenty of people here who say, $29, come on. You know, I spend, that, I spend more than that on coffee every week. And so, you know, you can do 29, and you could do a whole lot more than that and make up for the people who couldn't. I would love for us to knock this out of the park this week so we don't have to keep talking about it over the whole, the whole uh, duration. I'd love to get to our other challenges. And so in order for us to do that, now listen, I know some of you can be cynical about money and the church, and I understand why. You rightly are so. Um, I've spent many years in that same place. But for those of you who are a little, you're not so sure, you're, not, you're a, little, a little bit skeptical, I want to I tell you, I want to just promise, I'm going to make you a promise, that if, if you want to give to the Be Rich campaign, if you give to this campaign now, not a single penny of it is going to stay here. Maybe you're not into paying for lights and salaries and buildings and all of that kind of stuff. That's your thing. Cool. Not a single penny you give to this campaign will stay here. It is going to go through here to the kids of, of Nassau County, the most vulnerable kids of Nassau County who desperately need it. We will give every penny plus add to it in order to help these kids. There are no hidden shipping charges. There are no handling charges. There's no little asterisk on here. Every single penny will make it to these kids. Now, how can you give? Well, you can give cash in an envelope marked Be Rich. That's if you have cash with you today. You can write a check to Beacon, put Be Rich in the memo. These all go to a separate fund so that they're kept uh, unmingled. Uh, or you can text to give. This is a different texting number. This is a secure number we use only for finances. So this isn't the normal number for connect, uh, your connection card or anything like that. But you can simply take that phone number there. You could write it down. You could plug it into your phone right now. And you could type in there, give $29 or give $290 or give $2,900. Or you could give $8,700 and we could just call it a day and be done. Uh, but uh, so you can just text to give. Um, and you can also give in any of your other ways. You can give in the envelopes with the box in the back or anything like that. I'm going to be asking the band to come up now. And um, as they do, you guys can prepare how you want to give. We're gonna, we are going to have the ushers come forward right at the end of the service. And um, they're going to kind of uh, take us uh, right at the very end, uh, give us an opportunity to give if you want to give through an envelope. Um, but as the band is coming up and helping us get our hearts ready to come to the Lord's table... I just want to remind you of what Jesus told us in that verse. He said, do good to them 
and you will be the children of the Most High. Do good to them, and you will be children of the Most High. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Our compassion is rooted in the compassion that God has shown to us. Our love for others, our charis, is because of his charis. And as followers of Christ, we get to live with a completely different ethic of generosity. And that's what we're calling you each to practice over the course of this series, uh, Be Rich.